Before we jump back into Ephesians, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to gather as people who follow you and know you. We pray, Father, that you would take us from this moment, whatever distractions are in front of us, whatever distractions are around us, and put us, Lord, focused squarely on you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your son. We pray that you work in our hearts what we couldn't possibly do on our own. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So there's always a a tight rope to walk when you want to try to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish this morning. And I feel like I didn't quite hit the mark. So... The purpose of today's passage is the character development and the character qualities of the new person versus the character qualities of the old person. And if you'll note, as you read through these, which hopefully you've done as you've been reading with us coming into each sermon, as you look at these, what you'll notice is it's not about the appearance of these things. It's about the fact that those have changed then who you are. So what I tried to do, well, I woke up and it was tough to do things because Allison's gone, the big three are gone, and I found out I am not actually wired well to be a single parent. So, Lord willing, nothing will happen to Allison, but if something does, you all are going to have to help me. Anyway, I had a kid come into my room last night, and Noah wanted to sleep in the bed with me, so Noah slept in the bed with me, no big deal. Then Zariah woke up, and she came in, so I left, because I was already awake, and I was going to be awake, Then she didn't want to be in the bed, because Noah was in the bed, so she got mad at Noah, who got out of the bed and ended up on the couch. And now I still have a kid in my room and I needed to find clothes to wear. Not that hard. But the goal was to make it so that I didn't look normal. I didn't look like I normally dress on a Sunday morning. And I'm wearing jeans, if you can't tell. Which feels now like I didn't quite go casually enough. I needed to wear, if I'd have had a regular t-shirt underneath this, I'd have just wore a t-shirt with my jeans. Then I would have felt better about it because it's not about how I look. It's about who I am. And that's what we see out of this passage. This passage is not about how you look, but about who you are. And as we put on the new man, we start to show who we really are in this. But what's easiest is to give an appearance of who we are. Especially on Sunday mornings, which is the time most of us, is the only time most of us see each other. We can look really good for an hour, two hours, three hours. The question is, is that, is that really who we are? So let's read this passage. We're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Therefore, 
Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And those last two verses really become the epitome of where we're going. So, so all in all, by the end of this passage, where we're at is we're looking at these two different people. Right? Where did we just come out of? We just came out of a passage that juxtaposes these two people in one sense, telling us to put off the old man, to put on the new man, and now it starts to show us what the character of the old man and what the character of the new man really are. So when he says in verse 25, therefore, we're going to see commands all the way through at least verse 21 of chapter 5. So starting here, going at least until chapter, or chapter 5, verse 21, all of it reaching back to this therefore, which stems off of verses 24 to 20, or 22 to 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed by the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, right? Put off the old self, put on the new self. Therefore... Here's what the new man looks like, and here's what the old man looks like. You come into chapter 5, he's going to talk about what it looks like to then walk in love, what the new man would look like in that versus what the old man looks like. Therefore, look a certain way. No. Doesn't that go in contrast to what I said already? That it's not about how you appear to people. He doesn't say look a certain way. He says, therefore, be a certain way. Now, that certain way is going to have appearance to people. People will see what is inside of us. They'll see it come out. Christ tells us this much. That which is inside will come out. Out of the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's inside comes out, and it will come out. What we have here is in this juxtaposing of these two positions, we could, go to, we could go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount, three straight chapters of Christ speaking. He says this, no one can serve two masters. No one. Not me, not you. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one, and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and mammon. Wealth, power, prestige, position, 
authority, popularity, anything we feel like we could try to get our hands on, you can't serve God and that. You have to choose. And so we have these two people that Jesus talks about and that Paul then delineates out. One is the old man, one is the new man. One is the one that serves mammon. One is the one that serves Christ and God as the treasure of their heart. You can't do both, but you have to choose one. Now what this sounds an awful lot like or can sound an awful lot like is that we have to fool people into thinking that we're better than we are. And Paul is actually going to address that very thought and tell us that, no, that's not what we do. But before we even get to that, before we move on in the passage, as we look at this, therefore, let's get back to the right passage, Brock, therefore, having put away falsehood, therefore, because you are the new man, not the old man. Therefore, because of what Christ has done, the grace that's given to us, all of the realities of who we are, therefore, what? We each need to take a hard look at ourselves and ask, is what I show really me? Or is what I show just this pretense that makes other people think that I'm up here when really I know that I'm not. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not failure. We're gonna talk about that. We have to address that because each one of us has and will fail in what we're doing. Every sin is a failure. So then what do we do? When we fail, we recognize that there is grace. Right? All of the grace that's been talked about, all of the grace that Paul has pointed to is still ours even when we sin. We also have to recognize that Galatians 6-7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Which is a really interesting passage because for years I couldn't figure out this passage. They say, He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Yet, I hear God made fun of all the time. So how is he not mocked? When we look at the context and we actually study what's going on, what we recognize is that this is actually saying that God is not fooled. That sort of mocked. Not the sort of mocked that is made fun of. He's made fun of all the time. But he is not fooled. What you sow, you will reap. You can't fool him into sowing bad seed and getting good seed to grow. We're not able to do that. He is not mocked in that sense. So when we step back, we, we, before we begin this passage, we say, okay, therefore, put off the old self, put on the new self. Recognize that in that, we cannot fool God. Recognize that in that, we can't We can't cause him to think differently than what's real. Recognize that what? That as he evaluates on this, us, on this old self and new self, right? He's gonna do it based on criteria that nobody else can use. And all of this is a bit terrifying. 
All of this is a bit hard because I know sort of the recesses of my own heart and the brokenness of my own mind, yet God knows it even better than I do. Samuel goes to anoint a new king, David, and he shows up at Jesse's house and he sees big, strong, capable, leading men walk in and God says no to all of them. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or in the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord seeks not what man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So when we're talking about, thinking about this new man, we're going to put some things out there that may feel like, oh, here's some boxes for me to check. Here's some things for me to do, and then I will be the godly man. And the answer is no. He's going to show us what the godly person, the new person looks like, and then we can match ourselves up against it, but not just say, oh, then if I do these four things, then I'm that person. I was given the book one time, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Probably many of you know this book. It's ridiculous. Do you know why it's ridiculous? Because people give you this book out of well-meaning intent and the implication is, if you do these seven things, you will be a highly effective person. But that's running the whole thing in reverse, and it doesn't work in reverse. All the book does is take very effective people and say, what are some commonalities and how they function? Here's the commonalities and how they function, but just because I try to do the things that they do doesn't make me a highly effective person like them. It makes me a person who's doing these same sort of things, but I'm not going to be them. Or I may not be them. But we have this idea that if I can check all the same boxes that somebody else does, I will be this person. You won't be. I promise you, no matter, even if I had 10 fingers, if I'd have spent all the hours playing basketball that Michael Jordan or LeBron James have done, I would still not be as good as them. You know how I know that? Because all the other guys at the NBA have put the time in too, and they're not as good as them, right? But the idea is, if I check the right boxes, then we got it all figured out. So before we even start talking about what those are, we need to recognize and understand that concept. Or we will put ourselves in a position to fail because we're trying to do the wrong thing. Ephesians 4, verse 25, therefore, now what does this look like? Having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This one runs us into a couple issues. We are to have put away falsehood. And then we are to speak the truth. Now, before we talk about the falsehood, let's talk about the truth. 
Because we sometimes play this truth out like, I can tell you whatever I want to tell you and I don't have to be kind about it because it's true. I was in a meeting one time with some people and the person said, well, it's not bad if it's true. Okay. In a sense, yes, you're right. What you said was accurate, but it wasn't what? Loving. Well, how do we know these two things tie together? It doesn't say anything about love here. They're having, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. By golly, I could speak the truth to people, and I could tell them everything that's on my mind, regardless or irrespective of how it makes them feel. Is that okay? How do you know? It doesn't say it's not okay. It actually does. How quickly we forget that the answer to most of our questions are in the context of the passage that we're studying. Chapter 4, verse 25 says this, but just 10 verses earlier, chapter 4, verse 15 says, rather, speaking the truth in love. Now remember, if you were to just read this and time it, you're like 40 seconds from having read speaking the truth in love to now speaking the truth, which obviously is tying back to that. He's using the same wording. Now, for us, it's been three weeks since we've talked about this, right? And so as we, as we dive into passages and look at them, sermon-wise or homiletically, we start to separate out concepts in the scriptures inadvertently, this concept of speaking the truth in love is directly tied to the speaking the truth in verse 25. If we're going to speak the truth, he's already told us we have to do that in love. He'll write in Colossians 4, 6 that we're supposed to do it and speak in such a way that our words are, are seasoned with grace as though seasoned with salt. So everybody can sense the grace. Everybody can sense the kindness and the love in that. We're to speak that way to one another. But in order to do that, we have to have put off falsehood. And that is by far more difficult. What does it mean to put off falsehood? It means don't lie to each other, right? Partially. If he wanted to say don't lie to one another, you know what he would have said? Don't lie to one another. But he didn't say, don't lie to one another. He said, put off falsehood. Which means it's bigger than just the words that we say. It's the fakeness that we can show to people. You know what? You ask me how I'm doing this morning. By the time I got here, I was doing pretty well. But at 4.30, when kids wouldn't go back to bed, I wasn't doing so well. Honestly. I was just like, God, this doesn't work. I can't have them up at four and then try to make it all the way till noon. They will melt into puddles of something halfway through the morning. And I, for a moment, it's a silly little example, but for a moment, I started to doubt God's ability to be sovereign in these things, his ability to, to engage with all of this. And I started to think that I needed to deal with it. And then all of a sudden I was like, no, I don't. Right? But, but in that moment, I, I almost flipped mindsets. So if you'd have asked me then, how are you doing? And I'd have said, I'm doing well. That wouldn't have been true. 
If I'd have shown up and seen people and I'm going through a hard thing in life and I act all chipper and fake to them, some people, when they engage with hard things, they do still have that peppy sort of attitude. And that may be real for them. Real in the way that they're engaging with it. But if I'm engaging with something hard and I act like I'm not and I pretend like I've got it all under control when I don't, that's falsehood to people. We've been taught since we were about this big that that is an acceptable way to engage people. But Paul says that we are to have put off all falsehood. Speaking truth to one another implied speaking it in a loving way. That is how we are to act. And if we, if we live in this falsehood mindset or, or perpetuate this fakeness to people, these facades, then we can look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. And here's what he says about people who look like that. He's going to list out all this, this whole list about people who are, who are coming later who aren't real. He says in verse 1, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be all of these things. He's listing out what the people who are coming, who are going to bring difficulty, are going to look like. And verse 5 says, They will have the appearance of godliness, yet deny its power. What power? The power to heal bones and raise people from the dead? No, the power to save and the power to change us into the people we are to be. People will have the appearance of godliness. You will see them, I will see them, and they can fool us. But do not be deceived. God is what? Not mocked. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. Though you can mine. You can make me think you're doing fantastic in a great place in life, and you're not. You can make me think that you love the Lord with all your heart and you're doing wonderfully, but you're not. I can be fooled. He can't be. And so we put off all falseness. We speak the truth to one another in love. Do not be angry. Sorry, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give the, give the devil no foothold. What does that mean? When we look at the character of the matter, what does it mean, be angry and do not sin? I thought we weren't supposed to be angry. James chapter 1, verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteous life that God desires. But if we go back to John chapter 2, we see this with Jesus. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. The Passover for the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and their money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And he probably said it like this. Hey, guys, you probably should take these things away because my father's house is not going to be a house of trade. Right? After he drove them out of the room with a whip and took 
their tables and threw them all over. This was not a happy Jesus. This was an angry Jesus. So how could Jesus be angry and James write that the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires? And then Paul say, be angry and don't sin, as though there was an anger that wasn't sin. Because there is. What kind of anger is it that we're supposed to have that's okay? What kind of anger is it that we are not supposed to have that's not okay? It's actually really simple, yet impossible. Don't we love those moments? The answer is simple, but impossible. The simple answer is this. Anger is okay when it has nothing to do with you. If it has absolutely nothing to do with you being affronted, offended, hurt, or whatever, your anger is probably okay. But if it has anything to do with you, you're not getting what you want, you want something to be different, whatever it is, then it's the anger of man versus the anger of God. When somebody else is hurt and your anger wells up and you provide protection for them, which is what Jesus was actually doing in John chapter two, we could get further into it, but these people were showing up for the Passover when people had to have a certain set of things laid out to fulfill the Old Testament law and they basically treated it like a Green Bay Packers football game. And if you showed up, what you brought wasn't good enough, but you could buy what they had that was good enough and you could buy a hot dog for $14. That sort of thing. So people were traveling to Jerusalem and then they went to go make their sacrifice and the priests were like, hmm, this one's not good enough. But we have one that is. And by historical reports, what happened is they took these ones that weren't good enough and then put them back in the pen of the ones that are good enough so they just brought ones in and sold them to people over and over and over and made a fortune. And that put Jesus in a moment of irate mindset because people who were there to worship God were being hurt and harmed because these people wanted to make a profit off of them who were supposed to be people who were watching out for them. And so he became angry, made a whip out of cords, drove them out, basically threw their money out or spread it out amongst people. And there was not a happiness there. There was an anger. But it had nothing to do with Jesus being affronted. I mean, the guy got whipped, smacked in the face, crucified, and he didn't retaliate with anything other than God forgive them. Yet here, when other people are hurt, we see a different side of it. James says the anger of man, the, the anger that's directed toward what we didn't get and we wanted, does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It doesn't do anything good for us. Do you know how many times, percentage-wise, our anger is about us. I did the math. I didn't. It's not much. My anger is almost always about me. It's almost always about me not getting what I wanted or being affronted or disappointed or disobeyed 
And then it becomes anger because Brock didn't get what Brock wanted. Now, I could still be disappointed with my kids. I could still be unhappy with them, but I could be unhappy with them or frustrated with them without angry, right? Anger is another level of that emotion. And guys, this is particularly for us. Anger is the one emotion that we've been taught can be displayed in life. And it's really one of the few emotions that we're almost told not to display, But if we watch movies or TV or engage with culture, anger is the emotion that everything comes out as. You're hurt, so you get angry. I'm not angry or or it's okay because, because I'm really hurt. Okay, that makes no sense. Just because you're hurt doesn't mean you can be angry. Be angry and do not sin goes on to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Basically, don't hold it in. Don't become bitter. Don't give the devil a foothold. You give the devil a foothold when you are angry. When you are, that anger does move toward bitterness. We give the devil a place to, to stick his foot and sort of kick at us, hold the door open a little bit, and bitterness will ruin us. It ruins marriages. It ruins families. It ruins people. It ruins churches. And we can become bitter. Don't give the devil even that opportunity to start it by letting yourself hold on to anger. Don't get rid of it in the sense that you exploded at people. But don't hold on to it. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with those in need. It's to look like (laughs) the thief wanted as much for as little as they could give. As much as they could get for the least they could do. It's not what we're to be like. We're to look for ways to build, to, to add to. We're to look for ways to work hard. Working hard is good to a point. I was in a pastoral role in a different state and there came a point, this is when I was doing youth work, there came a point where I was in the 75-hour week, every week range. And Allison was like, this has to stop. Well, when? Um, now? So she actually started to control my calendar to some extent. Because what was happening, it wasn't even on purpose, but what was happening is I was scheduling all these different youth things that were spread out in a sense. None of them overlap, but they were too close to each other. So we would finish one event and immediately gear up for the next thing we were doing and immediately gear up for the next thing we were doing and had all the other things we were doing normal-wise as well. And it was unhealthy. I was doing church work and it was unhealthy. Not unhealthy for me, though it was, but unhealthy for my family. So we read this and we see working hard is good, but working so hard that work becomes a replace for your family, a replacement for your family, or work becomes an idol in your life, not good. I promise you, as we look at scripture, there is no price too high for you to pay to not work that hard. You won't make as much money pretty sure you won't find scriptures that say you're measured in the end by how much money you made. You won't be as popular or as well-known in your field 
you won't find anything in the scripture that says your goal is to be popular or well-known in your field. There's no price that's gonna be too high for that. You're gonna pay in a, in a hard way, but also work hard, right? That's the tension. Don't make work your idol, but work hard. Working hard is good. Being lazy is bad. Let the thief no longer steal. Now, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So now we're really at how we talk to people. So this new person, right? This new person isn't false. They're true in love. And in the way that they express truth is in love. This new person isn't angry. This new person isn't lazy. They work hard. Now let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is such is good for building up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up. That means different things to different people here. That's okay. We have to make sure that we are weighing it against this. Because some of us will say, hey, again, this is true and I'm not even being mean, but we can be very critical of people. That's me. By nature, I'm a very critical person of myself and of others. God has done work in my heart to point out that I don't need to be like that. But it's easy for me to. That's my natural default. But it also says, say that what's good for building up as fits the occasion. Friends, here's what that means. There are times where you could say things to me that would be not a problem at all. And if you say them like that to your wife, she will be hurt for a week. Figure out who you're talking to and say things so as to build that person up. Not just, I thought it was a nice thing to say or I thought it would be helpful criticism. Usually helpful criticism, not very helpful. Can be, but usually it's just criticism. At least that's how it's read. And so we need to say things as fits that occasion, as is useful there, if we're gonna be this new person. Why? Again, because what's inside of us, the God we want to be like, that's how he functions. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How in the world can we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? I didn't even know he had that emotion. So what does it mean that we grieve him? For some reason, he has chosen that we can take part in this development with him. We're not strong enough to make it happen. We're not good enough to make it happen. We're not smart enough to make it happen. Yet he chooses to let us be invested in it with him. And then when we choose to put on our dirty old self on top of the new self that he's creating, he is grieved. 
not disappointed, not angry. He is grieved by us. If you're a parent, you've been there. Your kid does something that it's not just disappointing. You're not just unhappy. You are grieved by what just came out of their mouth or the action that they just made. And you don't even know what to do with it. That's the wording here for the Holy Spirit when we try to go back to this old man mentality. Not old man mentality, but like old man golf, not that kind of mentality, but the mentality of our old self. He's grieved in that moment. If we went back to Genesis chapter 39... We read a story that when we really think about, it makes it, it is really hard. It's the story of Joseph. Genesis 39, verses 8 to 10, says Joseph in Potiphar's house. She came to him, she said, lie with me. But he refused her and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not, he's not greater in this house. He's not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? Okay, and sin against Potiphar is what he should say. Literarily. But he doesn't say, and sin against Potiphar. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? God hasn't even been in the story or in the conversation here. And then he says, I can't sin against God in this way. That's grieving the Holy Spirit when we were to choose to not care about sinning against him because we don't recognize that our sins are primarily against him, not against ourselves, not against other people, primarily against him. And then Paul finishes it with this. And this is just a recapping sort of of what it looks like. Verses 31 and 32, old man, old person, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. That's what the old person looks like. They look like a person filled with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. New person, juxtaposed, contrasted to, but be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Tender-hearted. Remember last week we talked about the fact that it says the Gentiles were hard-hearted. Now we are to be opposite of that, tender-hearted to one another, especially kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. That's what we are to function as, as a family. The old self the old self were to put off. That's the one that's filled with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. The new self is the one that we put on following the character of God. That is the one who's kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. Be your new self. Do not be or try to put back on your old self as it wastes 
away and is dying, put on the new self that is eternal and looks like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to know you. Lord, it is to your glory and to your honor that we seek to look this way, to be this way. We do love you. And it's in the amazing name of your son and the power of your Holy Spirit that we come before you. Amen.